It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is February the 9th in 2033, and my guest is David Johnston. David is the Chief Strategy Officer at DLTX, the first public tech company run by decentralists who believe the future will be built on open public blockchains owned and operated by their users. David is a major crypto and DeFi OG. He was the chairman of the board of MasterCoin that facilitated the world's first ICO, initial coin offering. And he was the first one of the first people to analyze the Ethereum white paper. I want to use this episode to trace the history and understand the thinking of one of the leading thinkers in the field and its current beliefs and give us a better sense of how we can build a more decentralized financial system or more decentralized Web3 or decentralized everything for that matter and how much of it we should decentralize or what makes sense to decentralize or not. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I do love talking about decentralization, so... Happy to jump in. Great. We're going to go deep into decentralization. Um, David, besides anything, besides what I said, anything else you'd like to know listeners about you to know who you are as a person? Um, I mean, probably most people know me for coining the term decentralized applications. So I wrote a white paper on the general theory of decentralized applications or DAP uh, in December of 2013. So right about the same time that, you know, Vitalik had white paper circulating through Ethereum, you know, Charles was talking about DAOs, you know, I was like, okay, how do we capture all the really cool stuff about Bitcoin, open source, peer-to-peer, persistent blockchain backend, and tokenize, and use that model for other things, right? And that was, that was sort of, I spent years evangelizing that idea that we could take what worked for Bitcoin and use it for, for other use cases. And, uh, you know, it, it worked, right? It, uh, you know, half a trillion dollars later, I feel validated, you know, it, it, it worked out. And so, um, maybe the other thing is, so yeah, in addition to all the, the things you talked about, you know, I, I could usually tell what year somebody became like aware of my work based on which project they think I'm associated with. Like, if it was 2013, you know, the Mastercoin Foundation, right? Which the credit goes to J.R. Willett. He was the inventor and really a guy. I basically said, hey, you might want to form a foundation and maybe there should be a multi-sig. There wasn't even multi-sig yet, right? So you ended up having, you know, the to coins hold over, you know, a bunch of different directors. But, you know, um, and then did, you know, Bit Angels with Mike Turpin. Uh, and so we funded a lot of the early protocols. But yeah, it's it's been a fun 
a fun 10 years, you know, um, maybe the other thing is, uh, I put out there on stage and coin summit 2014 Johnston's law, kind of like jokingly, everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. And people started tweeting it out and it became a thing. And so, you know, I think those are sort of good touchstones for, if you want to know what I'm all about is I, I really wanted to put out into the universe, like this stuff is inevitable as inevitable as men, right? These protocols are just more efficient, cheaper, faster, more effective, and yes, more ethical and more, you know, don't use violence as their basis for, for existing. All of those are positive things that we should try to see more of in the world. And so once you have that lens, you're like, oh, well, if everything's going to become decentralized, what's the next thing that's going to be decentralized? Right, because it started with money, then we got smart contracts, which sort of unleashed, you know, fundraising and token sales, and caused an explosion of new ideas. Um, and now we're getting into like Filecoin, and we're decentralizing the cloud away from a couple of centralized tech companies to thousands of storage providers around the world. So it's cool to see how far it's come, though. You know, it has been a weight on some use cases, like we were talking about, like NFT kind of stuff. Like 2014, 2015, there were early protocols like Wax uh, that implemented it. But it wasn't until like 2020, 2021 that some of those use cases finally took off. So, yeah, it's been a good couple of years because it's, you know, kind of getting to see all of those things we were hoping to, you know, uh, actualize, you know, are finally maturing and emerging into the world. Great. How did your thinking evolve up to that point um, in 2013 that you mentioned as a key moment? What were your influences and how did you then develop those ideas further? Well, um, if you came to my office in San Juan, you would see, you know, uh, in places of honor, posters of like Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek. And we just added uh, David Friedman. Uh, to the wall. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely rooted in a lot of history and economics, um, as well as, you know, the early days of the web. And I think that that mix of influences from both like thinking about, you know, why does scarcity create value? You know, why does freedom and liberty lead to more prosperity, more, you know, better outcomes in a, in a free market as opposed to a monopoly uh, based system, right? And so once you're kind of rooted in those ideas, you know, you start to map them to your own reality question, you know, why is there a, a monopoly providing this service? Probably be better if you had choice of money and you could pick your own monetary, you know, policy in the form of Bitcoin or Ethereum. And, uh, you know, so what I found uh, Bitcoin in, in 2012, I was happy to trade my green pieces of paper, which I had no confidence in whatsoever for Bitcoin, right? Or from there into other crypto. Um, so, I mean, if I, if I had to list one book, it would definitely be The Machinery of Freedom. So David Friedman's like sort of seminal like 1971 work literally coined the term uh, anarcho-capitalism, totally free markets. Uh, that was a big influence on me. And a lot of that came out of the Ron Paul days, right? So I volunteered in 2007 and 2011, the Ron Paul campaign. And there were so many, you look back, so many of the early Bitcoiners 
and Ethereum community came out of that because it was like, who was questioning the Federal Reserve in 2007? Like, there's a subset of people, they were Ron Paul advocates that, you know, wanted to out of the wars, you know, wanted our privacy back, you know, post, uh, you know, Patriot Act. And, you know, we kind of wanted sound money. Like, that describes the modern sort of crypto movement. So it's funny looking back at all the early guys like Charles and others that volunteered in those days now that are, you know, sort of prominent in the community. It's because they had that influence and base, not just in the technology, but in the economics, right? And crypto is really an area where you have to understand both. Like a lot of people told me there could be no other tokens. Bitcoin was the only one that could exist. There could never be anything else, you know, Anything else was an attack on, on Bitcoin and, you know, all this other kind of nonsense. And I looked around, there's like, free markets are a thing. Choices are a thing. Uh, I see in all of technology that network effects tend to specialize, right? There isn't one network effect to rule them all, right? Google is dominant in search, but they got nothing in social, right? They tried. You remember Google circles, right? They okay. It wasn't for lack of money or anything else. It's just they didn't own that that mind space, that network effect uh, around social that Facebook grabbed so early on and then continued to dominate thanks to acquiring, you know, WhatsApp and other uh, Instagram and other properties, right? And so, you know, and the same goes for Microsoft. We're still using Office software, right? Arguably not the best software, but it's got such a large base of users and 600 million people effectively program in Excel, right? And they're not going to update that brain saw <laughs> to do anything else, right? Because, you know, well, the other one doesn't quite do what I expect it to do. And I've already learned this. Right? So network effects tend to specialize. And that was one of the big things that I argued early on is it's okay. This is a good thing. Yes. You know, the early community split off and created Ethereum and that became smart contracts. That's fine. Right. And we're going to have something else like Filecoin that does something totally different with cloud. Right. And we see what Helium is doing with decentralized bandwidth. That's a whole different network effect that has nothing to do with, you know, cloud or smart contracts or, or money. And so that's, that was one of the big debates early on. Like people don't even debate it anymore because it's self evident at this point. But for a long time, it wasn't self evident. And, uh, you know, I took some flack, but, you know, I, I, I kind of, I'm really stubborn and don't really care what people think if, if their, you know, their prep, their suppositions don't match reality. Like, okay, you know, you, you do you, you know, I'll be over here with, you know, the real world, you know, where, where my data tends to match reality. Right. And that's kind of a, a way that I like to think about philosophy and ethics too, is you can make a very utilitarian argument around, you know, Yes, this is also the most moral system, but yes, it also has hadn't have had the effect of producing the best outcome, right? And you want both, right? And having the best outcomes is also a good way to gauge whether you're doing the most moral, right? And so anyway, that's that's sort of the weird set of, you know, philosophical influences, whether they're, you know, biblical when I was, you know, growing up, or, you know, nomic as I read about all the great economists or historical, you know, I try to fuse those together with my early web web one experience and be like, you know, hey guys, this this is something we can we can spread for everybody.
And so it's, it's been good, but you know, I've never gotten sucked into like one tribe, you know, as, because things can get really tribalistic. I've, I've tried to, you know, have be one step back and be like, I'm, I'm for everybody's success. Like Bitcoin winning is Ethereum winning is Helium winning is Filecoin winning is all of us winning. Right. And so if, if I were to take a, uh, a label beyond voluntarist, uh, maybe it's freedom maximist, right? And whatever tool I need for that maximum freedom, I'm going to use that tool, right? And it's okay to use different tools. Which... Great. And also uh, economics and philosophy as a background. David Friedman, also a big fan of machinery freedom. One book, if you haven't read that, um, it, that convinced that I think went even more on some of the things, deeper on some of the things that he said even more precise was Michael Humer, the problem of political authority. I think that really drove some of the messages home for me and sort of gave this consistent moral argument for, um, for freedom and decentralization. Um, so how did you, from then you said it took a very long time for this new idea to get adopted. I'm just very naively curious about that because. Uh, that's something I've been always thinking a lot about. So how do you make a insight that you have, the one that you're describing, that you can decentralize everything, decentralized apps? How can you bring that to practical action? How was, what was kind of the genesis of um, the idea becoming real applications and real things? So, I mean, it was, it was uh, really a confluence of different things, right? One, the timing was effectively perfect, right? I wrote the paper, released the paper. I would point out on GitHub, right? Where it's just where my core audience was, were developers, right? And so people worked the white paper, offered pull requests to the white paper. The white paper improved itself. It got better with time, thanks to other people contributing uh, to the white paper, right? And I didn't write it alone. I had a bunch of co-authors and I asked Palak and others to review the paper. And so people were aware of the concept. And then Ethereum came out. And I think on one of their earliest websites is like, you know, we're a platform for building unstoppable decentralized applications, right? And so they took that, that phrase, which, you know, the alternatives at the time were, you know, Dan Larimer was talking about decentralized autonomous corporations, DACs, which never really caught on outside of like the EOS bit, in, uh, bit shares community. Um, because I thought the word corporation had too much baggage from the state, right? And it meant a bunch of things that it didn't mean in our space. I was like, I don't think corporations is it. And, you know, I liked Charles's DAOs, right? We were writing our papers about the same time for decentralized autonomous organizations, but that was more about the governance, right? And less about like the practical, you know, how do we build these? I was like, applications, that's got to be the phrase that really wins out here because that's what people are building at the end of the day. Yes, governance is included. Yes, there might be a, a company or maybe not in our space, but there's definitely applications, right? And we're just giving a differentiator, just like you had electronic mail, right? E-mail. That was the differentiator. It was just the E. You know, I slapped a D on on apps and dApps. Dapps kind of sounded pretty cool. They're like, oh, what's that? You know, and, and it differentiated from, oh, this isn't a normal application. This is a decentralized application, right? On the original paper, put the small D and the capital A to make it obvious what the word was referring to. People still use that like capitalization today 
even after a while thinking about it, I was like, man, eh, maybe the D should be bigger. Like it's bigger in email. I don't know, whatever, like whatever people want to use, but it's been interesting to see that propagate out. So time of release, you know, the Ethereum community was forming. They adopted, you know, sort of that term and language, having a bunch of other people give their thoughts and kind of have ownership of the idea. Like it wasn't just my idea. It was, you know, somebody, every, every something everybody was bought into and then creating it as a, as a, a white paper on GitHub that everybody could work on uh, together. Eventually, I poured a version and tossed it on uh, Medium for sort of a broader audience. But you know, that's that's really how it it caught on. It was like be be the right be the right description at the right time for the right people, and they carried it forward. And sort of the Ethereum community has carried it forward ever since. Though there is there is talk at this point of maybe they should just call them Ethereum apps. You know. It, Ethereum has become the dominant protocol for all decentralized applications, still is today. So, you know, if they change it to Ethereum apps, that's fine with me. You know, there's no pride of ownership or anything. But, uh, you know, people are like, oh, why didn't you call them Ethereum apps then? I was like, Ethereum didn't exist. What? There was, you know, this is 13, right? You know, he announced the uh, the project in January 14 at the Miami Bitcoin conference. And, you know, to his credit, like, I've never seen... So many uh, people attending the conference follow a speaker out the door. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that YouTube video from January 14, but like 400 people mob him in the hallway after the talk. Like, it was, it was pretty epic. It was like watching the network effect of Bitcoin developers that wanted to build stuff on chain walk out the door. And that's where they got their network effect. They were also very smart uh, to reward every developer that contributed um, to Ethereum in the Genesis block, which a lot of people don't know they did that. That's a lot of how they built that early network effect. They rewarded the people doing all the work, which was mostly developers at first, and then people that donated uh, to the foundation, and then the actual miners. Right? That I, I often refer to that as the holy trinity right there. They rewarded the capital the people providing the actual operations and the people doing the code. And that's really what you needed, especially for Ethereum to develop, you know, smart contracts. Fantastic. So, so what is a DAP? I defined it in the paper as having those four core characteristics. I wanted to keep the list pretty short, but be inclusive enough that it reflected the ethics of the space. So I said, it's got to be open source. Look, not open source, it's, it's not even in the bulk. Right. Um, so it's got to be open source, right? It's got to have a peer to peer network. People have to be able to freely participate in all of the ways that you can be involved in the protocol, whether it's mining it or staking it or, you know, sending transactions. You can't go through some intermediary, it can't be run by some company. Right. So that was, you know, stake in the ground number two. Number three was it's got to have a blockchain. And I'm using that in the technical sense of it has to have a persistent ledger that everybody can download, right? Um, and the, the controversial one, the fourth one, was it has to have a token. And this is controversial. It's like, oh, why can't you just use Bitcoin? Why can't you just use another token? If the software can't pay for its own hardware, then it will always be beholden to a central. That was the breakthrough of Bitcoin, is issuing the tokens gave the software the independence, the neutrality of paying for its own hardware, 
right? What a, what a concept. All of a sudden, there's no guy with a checkbook in the middle that if he's not cutting checks, the servers turn off. People are running the servers. People are running the hard drives because they get that reward, right? And eventually, people sort of, any project that didn't have those four either failed or adopted those four, right? Ripple didn't start open source. Eventually, they're like, ah, we got to open source this. And they finally got to open source, right? You saw Hyperledger and other people try to do, oh, well, we don't need a token. We, we, we don't need a token. This is enterprise. They'll just run the servers. But then you lose persistence. If nobody's paid to run the servers, the network doesn't persist. So why would you build on a private blockchain? Because it's not going to be there in a year if they decide to turn the servers off. So without persistence, you can't really have decentralization of a blockchain or of a, an app, right? And so it's got to be open source, got to be peer-to-peer. You know, there can't be permission uh, or, you know, privileged groups, uh, you know, people in the system. And, you know, it's got to have a token. And eventually sort of those, there's a lot of debate in the community, but eventually those won out as sort of the predominant model, you know, and I, looking back, I don't feel like there's something I should have added or something I should have taken away. I think you got to have those four, right? And you can have a lot of other variation about how those are done, right? Conset- different consensus mechanisms, staking, proof of work. You know, I'm not, you know, sort of religious about those. Those are our choices in the system. But as long as it produces those four outcomes, then I think you're on the right path for building a real decent system. Yeah, uh, the token idea, isn't that kind of hyper-economizing? the whole project, right? So it, it's the token is in a way an equity of the project, right? So if the project is very successful, the token grows in value, but you also use the token as a means of payment for like developers and core contributors, right? So, uh, and it's infinitely divisible and you don't, what's interesting about it, you don't need these lawyer contracts for it, which is how you would do it sort of in the traditional uh, venture financing or corporate corporation system where you have like equity saves or whatever else. I wonder how does that play out from the perspective of a developer? Are they thinking about incentives the same way that we do? Or is there also a component of, you know, I just want to get paid for the work and it's just, you know, give me something that's easy to think about. So, I mean, it depends on if you're building a layer one, you're building a layer two, if you're building an application, I also sort of laid out, laid out the paper, that sort of idea that there would be different layers in a blockchain, right? And not everything needs to be a layer one. You're going to have a layer two for scalability, though it wasn't literally until this year, I think Polygon finally passed Ethereum for a number of transactions. So now for the first time, a layer two is finally really serving that purpose of providing scalability on top of layer one, you know, though We've been building layer two since like 2015. Factum was the first layer two built on both Bitcoin and Ethereum, but maybe seven years too early, right? And so, you know, it, you had, again, it's like all about timing. Um, and so it depends on the layers, you know, for, for a lot of applications, there's so many ways to get paid now. And I, I consider the token the way to monetize the open source. And I, I, I think about most of them are from a utility perspective, right? And that's how we ended up with language around utility coins, security tokens, you know, currencies, you know, these are all different uh, things. And then you have, you know, now 
talk about, okay, this is representing a real world asset, right? And so you have all these variations. And honestly, Switzerland and some of the European jurisdictions are light years ahead of the US and, and, and North American jurisdictions in general, with the exception of Puerto Rico, um, because they've, they've embraced this, right? This is something that and become a huge industry for them. They've gotten all the foundations, you know, moved to, to Switzerland starting in 2014 with Ethereum. And so, you know, but it can be as simple as charging for your app. It, once you have, you know, the tokens, you have options around staking, you know, I think you really have to think about the economics and tie them to the most important function in your, right? For Bitcoin, maintaining the ledger, you know, uh, for Ethereum, it's, it's very similar for, for Filecoin. It's about storing data, right. And awarding people for storing real world data, uh, in helium, you know, give me proof of coverage, you know, show me you're actually, you know, providing connectivity. Um, and so the ones that have been successful is, is you don't want to like shove a token into something that, oh, it's going to be another currency. We got a lot of currencies. I, I don't know if we need another one, but there's, there's a bunch of good options. Right? You get DAI if you want to be centralized stable coin. You got Ether, you got Bitcoin. But that's kind of what, if, if they haven't studied economics or haven't thought through the model enough, that's kind of what they go to is it's a payment token or it's a currency. That's usually not the right answer. Um, I really like the Filecoin model where what you need is honest and persistent storage of data over time. How do you get that? I'm going to pledge some token. These tokens have value and I'm going to lose my pledge if my, my storage goes off. Right. So I'm basically providing a, you know, bonded collateral that's locked in the protocol that if I don't do what I say, I'm going to do, I'm going to lose. It, right. That was a really smart way of building their token economics. Um, and so a lot of protocols have started using that, that approach, like, okay, we need this honest actor to do something that's hard to prove on chain, put something at risk, right? Have them put value in the system. And as long as that value is greater than they would get by cheating, they're not going to be incentivized to cheat, right? Um, because blockchain is getting to the point in the tech stack where we have to include oracles, right? This is smartcontracts.com, you know, which launched Chainlink. Everything in the real world has to be attested on chain somehow. Okay, you end up with an Oracle who's putting up some collateral that proves they're a good actor because otherwise they're going to lose their collateral, right? So there's a whole new wave of applications we can unlock as soon as you have Oracles, as soon as you have these other type of, of token mechanisms. So a lot, a lot of that boils down to insurance and bonds. Actually, yeah. I think that's an area that really needs to be expanded is not insurance on blockchains, but insurance of blockchains, of smart contracts, right? That's part of what we need for this next wave is we're not going to go from a trillion dollar industry to a hundred trillion dollar industry with no insurance, right? Retail just losing everything. If there's a bug in the contract, yeah, that. That's not going to fly with, with 95% of the early adopters. They'll take that pain, you know, they'll test out something experimental, but the average person doesn't want to do it, right? And how we deal with that in the real world, it's called insurance, right? 
cars are dangerous. They have accidents all the time, but we kind of need them. So we have insurance policies, right? And something happens. Okay. Well, you know, I got a thousand dollar debt in my car, insurance company, right? And that's where we need to get to with crypto. So it's cool to see Evertoss, uh, I don't know if you know Ryan Lackey and those guys, but they're doing some of the first insurance policies for smart contracts um, and for you know tokens and, and all the rest. And they've built that real sophistication about not just, yeah, the insurance part, but the technology and the granular understanding of how the technology actually works. So that's one thing that I'm watching for this next um, cycle is insurance and what I'll call real DeFi, which is stuff like ThorChain and Shapeshift, where you can get yield, but there is no intermediary. There is no custodian. It's really a truly DeFi system. And we've only had those for like six, 12 months. I mean, ThorChain was super experimental, had bugs, Treasury paid them out. They keep growing. It keeps working, right? So we need those type of systems to mature. And now that Shapeshift has launched, uh, I thought, I think they did Savers and Vaults just in a few weeks ago. So now I'm seeing a huge increase in the amount of usage on ThorChain because now there's a super easy interface for pushing a button, getting DeFi, and not handing my keys to Celsius or some other intermediary to get that yield, right? Because that use case hasn't gone away, um, but it was it was taken over by, let's call it DeFi in name only players who were using the terms, but it didn't work like that. And some of it, the technology wasn't there three years right? Can you explain the concept of an Oracle, maybe using insurance as, as an example, because you mentioned what Oracles do, and uh, I must confess, I don't fully understand it yet. You say they sort of have this link with this off-chain event and bring it on chain, right? So is it like... You know, when an event happens in the real world, oh, this hurricane happened. So this is kind of the off-chain event that triggers the insured event. What was, how does that relate to what an Oracle is doing? So, yeah, let's take that example. We have a smart contract. It's an insurance policy. I'm insuring you for $1,000 if your car is destroyed in a hurricane. How do I know a hurricane has happened? Well, nothing on the blockchain, you know, uh, that can record the weather. And so you need an Oracle to say, um, I'm writing this data of the chain. A category one has uh, hit Honduras. I can validate that and everybody else can validate that. And you have 10 Oracles or whatever number you want to validate that. And we're all bonded, you know, um, and, and therefore collateralized and incentivized to be good actors. Um, okay. That attestation, that you know, them writing that data to the chain triggers our smart contract. Their oracle of inputting that real world data triggers our smart contract. I pay you out the thousand dollars. You can fix your car from the hail damage or tree that fell on it or whatever from the hurricane. Um, and you know, there's an infinite number of examples you give of that. Like we have a contract around the price of gold. I'm supposed to give you an ounce of gold if it gets to. Yeah, but the point is, we kind of agree. But the point is, we kind of agree on a definition of you know, if this person or you know, this website, the weather channel or something like that, we kind of believe that as the fundamental and underlying truth, and that's kind of be hard coded into uh, into this transaction. 
And so everyone has seen it. Everyone has accepted this is the source. And then it's, then it's basically, then it's on chain. Exactly. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great because I think that was a missing link a bit in my mind. How do we make these things work? And it's still challenging for some use cases, right? Is it, is it challenging to find that kind of consensus in some areas? Um, it depends on how easy it is to define what you're trying to find, right? The price of gold, no problem, right? There's mm -hmm. 10 APIs online that connect into some international gold market and report every 10 minutes the price of gold. And the Oracle, all they might be doing is subscribing to that API. Somebody has to pay the money to subscribe to the API and then republishing it onto the chain and they're paying to write it on chain, right? So that would be a super That's easy, easy example. The real world stuff's a lot harder. Like, um, okay, a hurricane. Okay, yeah, there's weather APIs. Set a little geofence and, you know, if, uh, you know, the hurricane enters this geofence, I'm going to say that really happened. But then you get into messier stuff like, okay, I'm going to ensure your health. Are you healthy? Um, are you doing the things that should keep you healthy? Maybe you agreed that you're not going to go over 300 pounds. And I'm not, I'm not going to assure you if you, you know, go off the, the hilt and become, you know, 400 pounds, how do I know what your weight is? Right. Um, is there a digital scale? You know, is there an annual checkup? Like whatever source of that data is. So the, the more complex the use case, the harder it is to create an Oracle. And we see this in the real world, right? Which is why you have insurance adjusters and stuff like that. At the end of the day, they just send, if it's worth enough money, they just send a guy. Right. And the guy with his little clipboard stands in front of your house. Yeah. That tree really hit the house and yeah, uh, hit the main, you know, uh, living room and yeah, we're going to have to pay out and we're gonna have to find a contract rest. Right. So at some point, decentralization doesn't mean automation. It doesn't just mean it's digital. It means that anybody can participate in that process. So anybody can be the insurer. Anybody could take the policy. Anybody, you know, could be the inspector if they've got the proper certifications the protocol requires, right? It's about reducing the barriers for people to participate in that system. And by removing those middlemen and intermediaries, you take most of the fat out of the system. So instead of it charging you an 80% margin, you know, maybe it has a built-in 10%. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting in so many ways. Like you don't need to be a registered insurance agent, a licensed insurance agent, something like that, right? Or you haven't, you to, don't need to have a bar, bar exam to solve like a legal question that we have agreed. If we, you know, if it's settled this way, then this is kind of the on chain event. And, and I really is law as the early of third committed. Code is law. At the same time, there's a layer of human judgment, right? So the only change yeah. is that we reduce the barriers to participate in that kind of judgment and make it, you know, allow it anyone to, yeah, as I said, participate in that process. And as a, as someone who's trained in economics like me, you'd probably agree that sort of the final link or what the blockchain really can do or tokenization is solve property rights, right? And make them kind of more liquid and more tradable. And oracles are kind of the link to, um, for things like real estate or, you know, events that happen in a real world, legal questions, disputes that are settled. 
So um, to bring really solve property questions of property rights on chain visible for anyone. I like to say it's not very often that humanity changes its accounting system for all of the world's assets, right? And that's that's what blockchain is. This is a new accounting system, triple-entry accounting, if you will, and that is going to transfer all the world's currencies, all the world's real estate, and eventually all the world's securities, commodities, everything is, you know, represented in an accounting system somewhere. And I don't see a, I don't see a future in 20 years where almost everything is on a smart contract or on a blockchain or automated because it's going to just be that much cheaper, faster to move around the digital world than, you know, you've got your Excel sheet. And it's permissionless, so we can already work on it. We don't need anyone's. Um, but I like that to bring home that insight of hyper making property rights like hyper liquid. So, and that can basically affect everything around us, right? So that's really um, the blockchain eating the world right there. And we just learned about the mechanisms, um, how, to, how to arrive there. Um, I can also understand people who hear about Web3 for the first time. And what they, what, what's currently the, what's currently mostly about is like art NFTs, metaverse and gaming. And, you know, these are final legitimate use cases, but they don't seem to me like the big problems to solve that would excite me. Is Web3 or what you're seeing right now is, what's your, what's your take on that? Well, it's like the early days of the internet. Um, you know, people used to tell me that the internet was just for college students. It's, it's just for gaming and gambling. Uh, it's definitely not safe. You would never use your credit card online or it is ever going to buy anything. Um, and so, you know, the end of the day, uh, those problems of trust got solved, you know, honestly, they got solved by PayPal, right? In web 1.0, right? They're the link that made it safe for the merchant to sell and for the consumer to put their payment uh, details online. And people forget how much the legacy system fought PayPal. I think they were sued in 49 out of 50 states for, by, by, by the state for money transmission. And, you know, people forget that was hugely disruptive, but it solved the, the trust issue in Web 1.0. And so I would say Web 3 is going to be as broad as the web is today, right? It is to a person whatever they want it to be. Some people, you know, got online because they could check sports scores and care about college papers or, you know, gambling, but, oh, I, I gotta, I want to know the instant, whether my team, you know, scored or won or whatever. And, you know, for other people, it was different, right? I, I got an internet connection because I was, uh, day trading stocks during the dot-com bubble in the nineties. And that was to justify for getting my, uh, my dad to, uh, to get an internet connection to our house because before I had to go to his office and use his office. Right. And so it's as, it's as varied and different as, as humanity and, uh, the internet is today. And probably the best description I've heard though, if you wanted to put web three in a nutshell, right. Web one was, I can read anything on Google, you can go there to find any website. This is web two was, I can write anything on go on Facebook. I can, you know, post to my friends what, I, what I'm doing, right? And then that just rolled out with Twitter and everything else. Because I can read everything online. I can write anything online. With Web3, you can own anything online, right? 
whether it's that object in a game or an NFT or your own currency, you know, or access to applications, that's, it's the ownership layer, right? To everything else, right? And it's an important layer that's sort of been missing and the legacy industries are fighting that tooth and nail. Like try to get a bank account in crypto in 2014, right? You got bank accounts, closed restaurant. I don't know what this is. You know, you're, you're shut down. Um, and that's still true today. Try to get an insurance policy as a crypto company outside of somebody like Everdoss, who's, you know, a native to the industry. They don't know what it is. You know, crypto, like, are you guys another FTX? Like, we, we don't know. Like, we run data centers. Like, we, we, we don't even have a customer. It's like, you know, but they don't understand the difference, right? And so we're going through all those same growing pains that the internet had but on steroids because we're disrupting finance, banking, and nation states that want to control the monetary policy. Like these are, these are big fights. Um, and it's why people have had to move where they have had to move. We couldn't launch these protocols in the US. People moved to mm -hmm. Switzerland, Portugal. You know, we're a Norwegian public company for a reason because Scandinavia is fairly rational when it comes to their regulation. And, you know, their thought process for, yeah, of course you want transparency. Of course you want everything on, on a blockchain. That's their culture. If you go to Norway, they have this uh, system uh, and basically everything is public in Norway. Your taxes are public. The value of your house is public. Everything is transparent. And they've got this super transparent society. So they've been very embracing. Look at Switzerland. They had the best rules for bearer assets for the last 200 years, right? There's a reason 60% of the world's gold is stored within 25 kilometers of Zouk because that's the jurisdiction that respects property rights, has transparency of, you know, the ownership to the, to the actual owner, right? And privacy to the rest of the world. And so it's not surprising that when we first built digital bearer assets, that they would find a home in the same place that offered the best rules, physical bearer assets. And that's amazing. And Swiss have done a great job writing the laws and giving total clarity. This is a utility coin, this is a security coin, this is a currency. Great. Come, come talk to us. We'll give you a little letter. It says you're good. Like you can't get that in the U.S. And so I like to say, I'm not going to miss out on the largest wealth transfer in human history because of my zip code. Right. I, I had to move to Puerto Rico to stay in web three. Great. If they shut down Puerto Rico, I'm going to Honduras. They shut down Honduras, I'm going to Switzerland. I will go anywhere in the planet. I have to go. And there's enough people in the industry with that mentality. That's why Charles went to Wyoming. That's why Vitalik went to Switzerland and Singapore. Like you have to be willing to go where the friendliest places are. And so we're sort of rebuilding the financial global map of like, where are those hubs? It's not New York, not Shanghai. We got kicked out of both of those spaces between the bit license and the CCP kicking everybody out of, out of China. And so it's ended up Singapore. It's ended up Switzerland. It's ended up Norway and Portugal. It's ended up Puerto Rico. It's ended up Honduras. To the benefit of these places that are being friendly, they're getting a huge influx of smart people, capital, who are entrepreneurial, who are hiring locals, who are building new places. Um, and so it's, it's amazing to watch. Like I spent the last 10 years before this in, in Austin. And it was the same thing. They had the right 
ingredients of, you know, sort of easy to do business, low taxes, all the rest. And it just attracted the world. And when California fell apart, where did Tesla go? Where did Oracle go? Where did everybody go? They went to Austin, they went to Texas, or they went to Florida, right? People should go where they're treated best, to quote the nomad capitalists. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, I live myself in, in Prospera, a special jurisdiction where we also want to, well, build some of these legal innovations that are also required to bring some of these things off chain and vice versa, right? So, you know, much about that. What frustrates me sometimes is, or that people move less than I'd like them to, right? It's like, I see so many people like, come on, why do you still put up with that shitty government service? Like when you're in San Francisco and the streets are, I'm in New York right now, it's also getting dirtier and dirtier and the taxes get higher and higher. And it's like, why, why do you do that? Like I go to, to Mexico city and they get way better healthcare services. And I also now would know how to get much better educational services for my future children. Um, or for much cheaper. So it's like, I'm wondering sometimes, how do you get, get more of that, that you make people mobile? Well, people will put up with it to a degree. Um, and if it gets really, really bad, you get Detroit, right? Detroit used to be a city. There used to be a million people in Detroit. It used to be Motor City, literally, you know, the hub of automotive and everything. It's what, 400,000 people left in Detroit. There's no meaningful economic, economic activity growing there. And so you can go down that path and San Francisco might just be the next Detroit. Like that sounds shocking. Oh, it was the hub of innovation. Like, yeah, so it was Detroit 50 years ago. Right. But like, if you go full socialist, that's what you get every time. And so people just have different breaking points. You know, maybe they had still had a good job there. And so they could put up with the high cost of everything and the artificial constraints on, you know, expanding and growth. Um, you know, maybe it's where their industry network effect was, you know, and that's kind of where they go. And they spent a few years there. And then once they had a family, they get the hell like, but San Francisco has the least children per capita of any U.S. city at this point, right? It's not very family friendly, right? And so, you know, people move when they have to move. They don't want to move. Right. It's inconvenient to move it. You know, you got to make new friends. You got to learn a new culture. You know, um, I'm learning Spanish here in Puerto Rico. Right. I'm, you know, uh, getting used to all the differences in, the, you know, the culture and society. But, you know, I'm embracing that. I think we can build, you know, sort of Singapore for America here. Right. Uh, or Hong Kong. Right. It's inside this large economic system, but has a different set of rules. And it can, you know, build stuff that you can't build on the U.S. mainland. Um, but I think the key to your answer is lowering the barriers, right? Rich people have always had this freedom. They can move anywhere. They can be anywhere. They can have an extra house, whatever. Um, my goal is to lower the barriers as much as possible, right? And first was getting your money out of the system, right? Once you had your money out of the system, then you had a lot more freedom, you know, not living paycheck to paycheck to go where you wanted to. So that's, that's part of it. Um, no word about educational services. I homeschool my kids. Like I was homeschooled. My wife is homeschooled. It's part of our culture. And more and more people are homeschooling because the internet's thing. Let me break it to you. Like the best education online, like the person in person 
will never be as good as the person online because you've got effectively the top person in the world making videos about any subject you could imagine, right? Then it's just putting that in the curriculum and, and organizing it, having the discipline to, you know, keep focused and teach that on a regular basis. So, you know, we're getting those tools like one by one, you know, the goal should be just to remove every part of your life from the state, right? Is if you've moved out of a monopoly and into a free market, you're that much more free and it's your money, it's your education, it's how you work, it's where you live. And so we're making a lot of progress. I think it's actually an incredible time to be alive. You know, I, I was involved in, you know, libertarian efforts in the early uh, 2000s, right? And they were kind of a disgruntled group. Like they'd been talking for 30 years about the need for more liberty, but they had been trying to convince and change a political system, right? And I tried that. That was the Ron Paul attempt, right? Um, but what you realize is if you go down that rabbit hole, there's no reforming the state. You cannot reform a monopoly. All you can do is like take it over, but then you're the, you haven't changed anything, right? And so the, the key is to, to be that alternative, to go outside the system, create an alternative that's more attractive and people will come to it. And that's obviously what's happening with crypto. You've got 150 million people, you know, that have flocked into cryptocurrency and value there. Uh, but honestly, the place that's having the biggest impact, it's not in the Western world. Where's the highest adoption rate in the world? Nigeria, Turkey, Vietnam, Argentina. These are countries where they're just free enough to be able to get the crypto, but not, not, not in a place where the, the, their local currency is any good. So you're getting close to 50% adoption rates in these countries, right? And you've got El Salvador doing their thing. They're close to 100%, like at least in theory, as far as signing up to wallets and, and be, having access. And now you're seeing it in Honduras and, and other places. So, you know, that's, that's where it's taking off, where people have the pain point. You know, if you're sitting on a cushy job in the West, yeah, you go home, you watch Netflix, you relax. Yeah, the road's kind of broken. Yeah, the services kind of suck. But, you know, what can you do, right? And so, you know, the goal is to lower those barriers as much as humanly possible. One program um, that I'm helping uh, sponsor right now is called um, Patrimonio. And there's a website, patrimoniopr.com, that people can go to and sign up if they want to move to Puerto Rico, especially if they have a job in tech or anything they can work remote. They've changed the law here in Puerto Rico. You don't have to set up a local company to work remote. So now you can move down. You can earn your same salary at your same company, but be taxed at a much lower rate than you'd be paying in California or New York. And especially given Puerto Rico has six million Puerto Ricans leaving on the mainland. There's huge diaspora that would love to move home, but they haven't had the opportunity before where the jobs were there, right? And now things are remote first with a lot of companies. They have that opportunity, right? So those are the kind of initiatives I want to push. We're like, how do we lower the barrier as much as humanly possible? Like it's, it's all tax programs and how do I sign up? And I don't have an accountant or a lawyer. Like we're trying to automate every step in the Act 60 program and make it accessible to as many people, especially Puerto Rican, 
that want to move back and rejoin their families as humanly possible, right? So those are the kind of things I want to do is donating and building and, and um, patrimony is a for-profit company. The idea is to make money helping people move back so you can sponsor more people to move back every year, right? And get that flywheel going of, you know, a reverse brain drain, right? That's, that's the irony. Like people used to leave Puerto Rico. It's the opportunity was in New York. Now that New York is, you know, closed for business, I have a bunch of New York friends that all moved to Puerto Rico because this is where the opportunity is, right? So it's, it's reversed what it was 40 years ago. So that to me is a very encouraging trend. I get a call almost every week from a friend moving down to Puerto Rico. And I'm like, great, here's where you get your office. Here's where you get to your house. Come to the community barbecue. We'll see you next week. Like that's, that's kind of stuff you want to do for, for people that uh, you want to join the community and encourage. Yeah, you're echoing a core team of this podcast, right? So a lot of innovation that we really need to make the world a better place, like in medical technology, in education, in, um, you know, in real estate and all sorts of finance, they're just outlawed or you know, they're not able to do them, but they're outregulated in other countries. So if you work on, you know, a drone startup or if you want to do nuclear power, hopefully at some point, or if you want to um, work on a, a medic medtech startup do clinical trials which we're already doing in prospera <laughs> so um then go to these places where that lets you that lets you do those and find and build a community to do it for crypto and and blockchain i suppose especially for americans puerto rico is big right because of the tax advantages right sorry you have the double taxation thing <laughs> and it's not even just the taxes it's the regulation because mm -mm. you have to remember in the U.S. context, um, the federal government is supposed to be fairly narrow. If you read the Constitution, right, there are enumerated powers that the federal government has. Unfortunately, one of those powers is taxation. And so one of the few ways that a law can stand up to a Supreme Court review is if it's a tax law, right? So even the healthcare law, was a tax law. Like if you didn't do it, you're going to get a tax penalty. Like, because that's what would sit down up in the Supreme court. And so what's unique about Puerto Rico is they're not federal taxpayers. They're Puerto Rican taxpayers. They have their own parliament. They have their own governor. They have their own local taxes and thus their own tax code. They get to write all those regulations. So all Obamacare doesn't apply here. You know, most of the rules uh, related to international taxation don't apply because those apply to federal taxpayers of which Puerto Ricans are not. So it's one of the few places in the world you keep your U.S. passport. It's a domestic flight. Everybody uses dollars and it's America here, but you're under a different regulatory environment that can be shaped to be friendlier and they have shaped it to be friendlier to Web3. And so you come down for blockchain week and, you know, there's the speaker of the house. Move to Puerto Rico. You're welcome here. We want you guys here instead of what you get in New York and California. Oh, get out of here. You know, we don't know what you're doing. You know, go away. Right. So that's really refreshing. So that's mm -hmm. certainly where I want to spend my time. Yeah. So you being experienced in jurisdictional hopping to startup jurisdictions like Prosper or Talent City or forming network sites like Afropolitan. What do you see as major gaps or are there any recommendations you can think of for these jurisdictions to attract people like you? I would really like to see an expansion and emphasis 
on the e-residency programs. So Prosperia has, has a very good one uh, for e-residency. And I've been talking uh, to the team there. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the crypto community that would benefit from being e-residents. And it draws that connection into arbitration, insurance, how you set up your business. All of a sudden you have sort of um, a legal basis for all of that. And it's $130 a year. Like it's very affordable and a lot cheaper than getting a passport to St. Kitts or Nevis, which I'm a fan of. Um, and if you need that, it's great that it's an option, but the $130,000 is a lot of, a lot of money, right? Um, uh, $130 a year is, is a lot better, right? And you might get a lot of what you need. You don't get a passport, but you're going to get a lot of what you need to operate a company through an e-residency. So just the way that Estonia was very popular for e-residency for a while, and that was like your foot into Europe. The, the downside there it was very still difficult to get banking and other access outside of just, I have a company, I can sign contracts. So I think Lothmeria has the opportunity to be the full suite, right? Not only do you have, you know, the incorporation, but you can get, you know, all financial services and they might be crypto native, right? Maybe it's moving stable coins, right? Basically like having a bank. If you want dollar denomination, there it is, right? USDT, USDC. And so I think expanding those e-residency programs is going to be really interesting. Um, and I want to connect that in this charter city, charter city idea to the nation. So I, I'm sure you've read Washi's new book, you know, um, and I, I'm going to refer to them as network nations because I think the word state isn't, isn't useful in this context. Right, it has too much baggage from uh, from nation states, and I actually believe in the separation of nation and state. I think uh, the state is a parasite on top of nations, just like it was on top of religions or the monetary system. And so that that separation is very important. So network nations, this idea that we can have free association with other people whose value and identity we share. Right, I think you're going to have a network nation for Puerto Ricans or you know, the Swiss diaspora for, you know, I mean, Israel's done a great job of this. They have the whole right of return uh, program and, you know, sponsor you to, to come back to, to Israel, right? So there's all these examples of global communities that aren't in one physical place, but they have that, that social business connection uh, that's hugely beneficial, right? And so I think that's sort of the rebirth as we get away from nation states towards network nations. And connect that into the idea of, okay, there are places that it will embrace this area, you know, Puerto Rico, there's, there's places that have this concept, like behind me, I have my Puerto Rican citizen, like it's under my U.S. citizenship. Most people don't even know you can get a Puerto Rican citizenship and doesn't give you another passport. That's I, that identity, um, and that identification of I'm, I'm with this, this group is very interesting and, and scaling that globally as a network, right? And that's the ultimate way to remove the barrier. Oh, I don't have to move. I can sign up online. I can, I can make a $130 donation and they give me a, an e-residency. Great. So, you know, I'm, I'm donating to a few projects right now. Um, one is uh, networknation.org, uh, which are working on tools to connect staking and liquidity uh, provision and those rewards 
to donating to network nations and getting e-residencies. So uh, looks like the code's coming together on on that project. But I love you know supporting projects and initiatives like that. So you know I think that's that's the ultimate way we're going to get there is once you get most of the benefits from a jurisdiction just by signing up online. And we're we're really close. Fantastic. I have so many more questions, but we're getting close to the end of time and we didn't even get to talk yet about DLTX. Do you want to tell listeners a bit more about DLTX and what you're building? Sure. Um, you know, I'm a decentralist, right? So it's, it's almost kind of funny or ironic uh, to end up running a public company, right? Uh, which is sort of so, so rooted in the state. Um, but what I realized is for us to take the industry to the next level, we have to be able to access public capital, right? And there's like 30, 50 trillion dollars um, stuck in the public markets, right? How do we move that value into freedom tech, right? You need a public company, right? That gives anybody with a brokerage account the ability to type in four letters, DLTX, right? And and the Norwegian exchange last year, two years ago now, uh, got merged into Euronext. So effectively, all Europeans at this point can buy the shares because it's part of the main exchange uh, with a common trading book between you know, Paris, Dublin, you know, Norway, and, and everywhere in Europe. And so, you know, that's the stage we need to get to is take the capital from those public markets, put it into open source decentralized systems, and really drive the benefit that way. And it makes a super easy way for people that maybe aren't going to be comfortable technologically. How do I open a wallet? Uh, if I do, where, where do the tokens you know, go? How do I report them? All these questions go away if you can just buy us. Right? They've already got the brokerage account. They've already got their 408k in there. You know, got, the, got their money in that system. That is such an interesting bridge from the legacy economy to Web3 to have a public company. And so that's why we call it the DLTX, Distributed Ledger Technologies. Like literally the name of the industry, right? In the most sort of boomer-friendly, you know, non-threatening, decentralized, distributed technology, right? And so um, that's sort of the, the dream for, for DLTX. And, and we've really hit on Filecoin as, as really something that's gotten traction, has reached multi-billion dollar market cap, that we run data centers for in North America and have partnerships uh, in Europe. And actualizing a decentralized cloud is, I think, the whole next level of this industry. Like all the smart contracts, all the websites, all the applications have to store the data somewhere. They need compute resources. They need all of these things that a cloud provides. Let's do it in a neutral, open source, you know, way that anybody can access and anybody can be part of. So I think that's sort of the next critical building that we need as an industry, which is why I'm focusing all my time on, on that, um, you know, beyond the open source projects I donate to and, and, you know, uh, where I try to, you know, add some thought leadership and write some article. That's, that's my big focus is, you know, it's not enough to write about it, you know, uh, or, or campaign for it. You got to roll up your sleeves, got to build something. Right. So and I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. And so I can't, I can't resist rolling on my sleeves and, and getting in uh, to the details. So, but a great adventure. So through it far, we're in our third year 
Uh, it's interesting. It used to be, we took, we basically did like a reverse merger uh, business combination agreement and uh, a share exchange agreement uh, in Norway. And it used to be a mining, like metals mining back in the day. And the regulators are super reasonable. And they're like, yeah, okay. You're doing digital mining, the commodity, you're producing commodities. All right. That makes sense. That maps to this company in this category and grandfather in like, which was awesome. Right. So we got to take over a company that was already listed, already had, you know, a history and anvils and all the rest. And so, you know, that was the, used to be called Element. Now it's called DLTX. That was the birth of, of DLTX. And we ended up in the friendly European markets. Surprise, surprise. Like it's, it's almost become like a stereotype or, you know, um, North American entrepreneurs housed in friendly European jurisdictions, raising capital in Asia to solve problems in Africa, Latin America, and India, right? You know, that's, that's all the blockchain in a nutshell, right? That was the journey of Pollock. That's the journey of most of the people because that's what you got to do, right? Anybody that stayed in the U.S., they got crushed, right? And so people moved to friendlier jurisdictions. So for, for DLTX, our, our goal is just to be that leading company that gives people such easy access to this whole Web3 category. You know, if you invested in Google in the 2000s, you were making like a 50-year bet on the internet. You know, they're just going to track the growth of the internet. DLTX is basically a 50-year bet on web, on public blockchains. That's all we do. We have no traditional customers. Protocols are our customers. We get paid in tokens. We think that's a pretty good model. Like the protocol always pays on time. It's driven by an algorithm. You know, there's, there's no question, right? We put in this much money provide the service, get payback this much, right? And we're just, we think one of the first companies to do that, but we think most of the world will look like in the next 10, 20 years. You're going to basically carve out the Fortune 500 one by one and stick in smart contracts and, you know, better rails with public blockchains. And eventually maybe the companies will still be there. They'll be illegal wrappers, right? For effectively what are decentralized system things. So. That's, that's sort of the end. Fantastic. I loved our conversation it was so wide ranging. So it, it, we got a really good explanation from one of the leading thinkers in this space. So sort of the mechanics of how we can make decentralization work, why tokenization is kind of making everything around us potentially liquid, right? Sort of including property rights to things we own, just, um, everything like from real estate to potentially even your own health. And we also learned about sort of key mechanisms like oracles to sort of make that translational, um, to do that translation between on-chain and off-chain events. And also loved how much of the like call to action this conversation was for entrepreneurs and builders out there, like go to where you can build, go to the best jurisdictions, reward their, them forward thinking with your presence and with the products you build and help us decentralize the world. Right. So in a nutshell from, you know, you can be in, in Puerto Rico and build something for Africa and Latin America. And it translates into products that will be used in all corners in all parts of the world. David, um, thanks so much for this conversation. Anything you'd like to draw listeners else you'd like to draw listeners attention to what are you looking for right now? Who should approach you and how can they find you? So, you know, we sort of think of. DLTX is a community, right? So we're constantly looking for partners 
that, you know, want to become storage providers and Filecoin that have big data sets, public data sets or enterprise data sets that they want to store for a tiny fraction of the cost that AWS charges. If you're in that category, reach out to us, right? We're not hard to, not hard to find. It's literally David at DLTX. Um, right. And I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. So partnerships, um, you know, open source developers, we're always hiring. You know, we've done a bunch of acquisitions and hiring recently. But the macro point I want to make and leave, leave your audience with is don't be discouraged by the prices. I've been through so many bear markets and bull markets since 2012. Don't get distracted by the price. Follow the real metrics, which are users, adoption, amount of money flowing through the system. All of those are going up and to the right. And it's just like the early days of the internet, right? The dot-com boom and bust came and went, but the number of internet users never slowed down. You can't even see the bubble on the chart, right? Because people wanted that technology and they got access to it as fast as they human foot, right? So same thing is happening in crypto and, and web. So focus on the growth. Don't get distracted by, by prices. If, if you're a long-term investor, prices are sales. All the assets you wanted are on sale. If you still believe in their thesis, go get them. You know, maybe don't try to chase something 5,000 down on the chart, but if it's like real and it's got usage and a great team and it's scaling, the price will reflect that over time. You just have to be patient. It might take two years, it might take five years, but that's that's how investing works, right? So keep building, keep investing, keep focused on the goal and what we're trying to make. Love it. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.